Mugubi Magumi was a baby when her parents separated, and her father disappeared from her life. But years later, her mother, Asako, told her he wanted to reconnect. Megumi began to see Yamada regularly. She thinks he is her father and that Yamada is his real name, but this is a lie. When Megumi was 10 years old and blaming herself for her parents' divorce and being bullied at school because in Japan, single-parent homes are frowned upon, her mother came up with the idea of hiring an actor to play Megumi's father. Over the last 10 years, Takashi's character, Yamada, has grown very close to Megumi, now a young adult. He's become a part of the family. He even tells Megumi that he loves her in the way that any father might, but of course, he doesn't really. How does he justify this act of deception? Switching personalities and identities is very important in this job, he says, but I'm a human. And so, of course, it would be a lie if I said I don't feel an emotional conflict saying I love you to this child, but this is the business. I have to do it, and I have to keep reminding myself of that. Asako also understands that some might disagree with her choices. I know that I'm doing, I know what I'm doing is drastic, she says, but I really, really want to save my daughter. To complicate matters, she has also become very uh, attached to the fictional character she is paying Takashi to portray. I sort of fantasize about our relationship that maybe we can be a real family, but the relationship as it is, is actually, actually helps me emotionally and mentally as well as it keeps me stable. In fact, Asako has no plans to end the arrangement with Takashi and says she would like to carry on hiring him to play Megumi's dad indefinitely, even if that means sinking deeper and deeper into a world of fantasy and deception. Woo! Who in their right mind would hire someone? Hire someone to, to play the part of a father to a child. And not only that, but Megumi still thinks this person's her dad. She's a 20-year-old, and she still thinks this actor is her actual father. Why in the world would you go to such great lengths to deceive your child, to replace their actual father with an actor? Well, whether we admit it or not, family is extremely important to us. We may not get along with them all the time. We may argue with them or fight with them, or they may grate against our very last nerve. But for the most part, we want to fight for family. We, we, we feel like family is worth fighting for. This mother felt like she was doing the right thing for her daughter, although I don't think she was, because when will it end? When her daughter has grandchildren, is he still going to be involved in this lie? But regardless, it kind of lets us understand just how far people will go to actually enjoy family. Even if it's not real. Even if it's just a fake family. They want to be involved with that. Even beyond just our immediate 
and extended families, many people are actively trying to connect to their past. If you remember, there's all sorts of things. Ancestry DNA, family tree DNA, my heritage, 23andMe, living DNA, and these are just a few of the different sites that you can send in a cheek swab to and they can tell you where you came from. For some, it gives them a sense of belonging. For others, they feel connected with, quote, their culture. Others are hoping it will verify just how special they are. While others are doing it because they are wondering if there's any medical conditions they need to be aware of. But the truth is, we're not really the originators of extensive family trees. We're not the first group of people who thought to themselves, hey, I want to find out about my past. I want to be connected to my ancestry. I want to know where I came from. In fact, case in point, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the very first book of the New Testament. The very first book where the Gospel is going to be proclaimed. And what does Matthew start off with? He starts off with this long genealogy of Jesus. Name after name after name after name. And for most of us, as we started reading Matthew at one time or another, we began the genealogy. We got about six or seven names in and we just skipped on down till we got to verse 18 and went on about our merry business. We we're like, I don't care about all these names. What do all these names have to do with me? Why would God put this long list of names as a way of kicking off the good news to the world? Well, today we're going to continue in our Christmas series, a Christmas series that I've entitled Hidden Christmas Gifts. Gifts that are brought to Jesus that sometimes we neglect to recognize, sometimes we overlook. And so as we go through this series, I want you to understand, last week we talked about Jesus being the light in the darkness, and sometimes we, we don't always pay attention to that. And I reminded you, as you see Christmas lights being shown, remember Jesus came into the darkness for you. But what can we possibly find in a genealogy? So if you have a Bible, turn me Matthew chapter 1. It'll also be on the screen. I'm going to read to you the entire genealogy. I'm going to try my best to pronounce the names properly. And you might be thinking to yourself, what a waste of time coming to church to hear a list of names. But God felt it was important that this list be here. So maybe we need to try to figure out why it is so important to us. So let's see. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, Ram, excuse me. Jehoram was a father of Uzziah. Uzziah was a father of Jotham. Jotham was a father of Ahaz. Ahaz was a father of Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Joachim and his brothers, born at the time of the exile of Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of uh, Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Ibid, Abid. Abid was the father of Elikim. Elikim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliod. Eliod was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Woo! We did it. We did it. We did it. Next time I do a genealogy, I'm going to have someone from the congregation read the genealogy. What a list! What a list of names! You're like thinking, who cares? I don't even know what all those names I can't even pronounce all the names, and neither could the preacher. But there's gifts hidden in this list. There's gifts. God is communicating something through this long genealogy, and I want us to be aware of what it is. And the first thing we need to understand about this un a long genealogy is that it is undeniable. Undeniable. God is proclaiming that His Son Jesus is an historical figure. He is wanting that to be undeniable. Jesus is not a fairy tale. He's not some kind of figure, figure in fiction that is supposed to teach us some kind of moral way to live. He actually lived. He was here. This is Jesus being grounded in history. That is what God is doing here. At least one of the things God is doing here. He is grounding Jesus in history. He is making Jesus an undeniable part of what has gone on in our past. He has entered into the history. He took on flesh. He lived as a man. He is grounded in history, the very same history that we are living in. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. I want you to understand right from the get-go, this is the foundation of the good news. The Creator of all things becomes the created to save those who could not save themselves. Jesus, who created all things, humbly becomes the creation to save all of us who could not save ourselves. By the way, the gospel message, which is also called the good news, that's what it means, the good news, recognize it says good news. Something that actually happened. Not good advice. It's not good advice. It's good news. Because Jesus came into history to secure the way through a humble sacrifice. The good news is about what Jesus has done. In fact, Jesus alludes to that fact in John 14, 6, which we're all familiar with. He says, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I am the good news. I'm the way to God. I have come. I am the history of it. The Gospel was not put into place so that you knew what you should do. It was put into place so you knew who did it for you. Now, there are things we should do. But the Gospel message is Jesus took care of it. He did it. And He asks us to follow us, follow Him. So this genealogy right up from the, from, from the get-go, God is saying, it is undeniable, my son was a part of history. There's another thing that we see in this genealogy. Unashamed. It was undeniable, now unashamed. Now there's something very unique about Jesus' genealogy here. Maybe you noticed it, maybe you didn't. But throughout Jesus' genealogy, there are five women listed in his genealogy. Five women are included. Now, you might think, well, so what? Well, the so what of that is because that is unheard of in Jesus' day. That is completely unheard of. There was no one going to put women in their genealogy if they could help it. In fact, they were just going to ignore them if they could. But Jesus unashamedly puts them in there. Even though his culture was against it, he was not. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, starting verse 27, it says, And all of us who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new, new clothes. And then it goes on, it says, There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, God makes it very clear that male and female, along with Jew and Gentile, or slave and free, they are of equal value to Him. But that was not the case in the patriarchal culture of Jesus' day. In fact, for the most part, women were ignored. Virtually never referred to in any genealogy. Couldn't testify in court. Had no real standing in their community. Yet God says... I'm going to include them. I'm going to include them in my son's history because they're an integral part of that history. They're valuable and important. And so he includes five ladies. And by the way, interestingly enough, not only are there five women there, but three of them are Gentile women. So in Jesus' genealogy, not only is there five women, but three of them are Gentile, which makes this even more scandalous in Jesus' day. But then you actually look at what these women did and you find even more scandal. For instance, Tamar, who is mentioned in this text, well, she tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. I mean... This person's in Jesus' genealogy. The person who tricked her own father-in-law into sleeping with her and giving her an heir. Or Rahab. Maybe you remember her. Rahab in, in Jericho. The person who hid the spies. Does anybody remember her profession? Prostitute. Here, here she is, a prostitute. Right sunk smack in the middle of Jesus' genealogy. Or Bathsheba, which many of your Bibles don't even have her name in there. Part of the reason is because I don't. I, the, the, the writer, Matthew, I wasn't necessarily pointing to her as much as he was pointing to what David did, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. But here she is, Bathsheba. 
The lady who commits adultery with King David. Now, those are the three tough ones. But we also have two great ones. We have Mary and Ruth. And both of them are praised for their good character. In fact, Mary, when an angel comes to her and says, hey, you're going to be with child. I've never been with a man. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. This is what she says, Luke 1, 38. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. That's her attitude. I don't know how it's going to happen, but let it happen. Let it happen. Or Ruth, a foreigner whose, whose husband has died. She stays with Naomi, and this is what it says. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. You understand what's going on here? Ruth is saying, hey, I am with you. I am loyal. I will never leave you. Two great, great examples that we all should be following Philip Yancey says, as I read the accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who was a rabbi, had given thanks daily that he was born, that he was not born a woman or a slave or a Gentile marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One modern Indian pastor told me, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in, only one, area, in one area, Christians strive, however inept, beyond all the rest. They strive to mix men and women of different castes and races and social groups. He said that's the real miracle. Diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. Church offers a place where infants and grandparents, unemployed and executive, migrant and blue bloods can come together. Philip said, just yesterday I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a puffing oxygen tank and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? He said, when I walk into a new church, the more its members resemble each other and resemble me, the more uncomfortable I feel. I want you to understand, Philip Yancey is not the first person to display such a view of the church. He's not the first one to, to grab hold of the idea it needs to be a diverse place. Jesus displayed it. Even before His birth, He was displaying it. He was displaying that He embraced all people and has called on all of us to do the very same thing because throughout the history of His family, that's exactly what happened. He was unashamed to embrace all. 
The genealogy is unedited, is written unashamed, and it is also unedited. I think I said unedited, but I meant undeniable. But it is unedited. Unedited. Did you know in Jesus' day, your genealogy was your resume? That, that, that's what your resume was. Your resume was your genealogy. And like today, back then, people would edit out those things that might make them look bad. So if you were, you know, in Jesus' day, if there were some family members in your past that made you look bad, guess what you did? You just edited them out. You skipped them. Bloop, jumped, jumped right over them and forgot all about them. Because that is your resume. But Jesus' resume is unedited. In fact, Jesus' resume highlights the flaws of people. To me, that is what really brings it home. It highlights. We've already talked about the women, which he was unashamed about. But what about the men? What about the men in Jesus' resume? Jesus' genealogy? We start off with Abraham. If you studied Abraham at all, you know that Abraham is a liar. He's a liar. He lied about his wife. Said he was his sister, which she kind of was, half-sister, but nonetheless, he was a big liar. El liar. That's what he was. A liar. A liar. Jacob, not too many, just a few generations farther, was a cheat. He was a cheat. He stole his brother's birthright. And not only that, but then he tricked his dad, who was blind, into giving him the blessing too. A cheat. He was a cheat. Judah was sexually immoral. In fact, not only was that he was sexually immoral, but, but he wouldn't live up to his obligation. In fact, that's why Tamar tricked him into giving her an heir because he would not give her his last son. The first two sons died and he wasn't about to give the last one away and so she tricked him. But he was morally, you know, he didn't mind some sleeping with prostitutes because that's what he thought he was doing. Then we get to King David right at the bit, like the pinnacle of Jesus's uh, genealogy, and, and here we know, we all know that King David was an adulterer. And not only that, when Bathsheba gets pregnant, he can't cover it up because Uriah is too, too loyal, too, too, has too much integrity to sleep with his wife while all the other men are at battle, so he kills Uriah. He puts him out there to die intentionally. And these are just the ones we know about. There's other names on this list. We have no idea who they even are. But we, I guarantee every single one of them has flaw after flaw after flaw. But, the, but Matthew makes sure that we understand these flaws. He points them out. He makes them very well known. But I want you to listen to what Hebrews 2 verse 11 says. So now Jesus and the ones He makes holy have the same Father. And it says this, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them His brothers and sisters. How often are we ashamed of family? You know, we're ashamed of what they've done. We're ashamed of how they act. We're ashamed of what they say. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed of us. 
And how often have we done things that were wrong, acted in ways that were wrong, and said things that were wrong? And yet, He's still not ashamed to call us His brothers and sisters. In fact, not only is He not ashamed, but He shows us His love. In fact, two chapters over in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, the high priest Jesus of ours understands our weakness, for He faced all of the same testings we do, yet He did not sin. It reminds us that Jesus is not only not ashamed to call us His brothers or sisters, but He understands our struggle. Now this is not an excuse for us to keep on sinning. That's not the point. The point is, Jesus went through everything we would have to go through, but without sin, in order to show how much He loves us how far He would go for us. When others write us off, Jesus is excited to write us in to His family. To call us brothers and sisters. To include us in His mission. Jesus does not edit us out. In fact, He died to edit us in to His family. Martin Luther talking about the birth and where Jesus stands with sinners. Luther wrote this, he said, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, He even puts them in His family tree. Now, if the Lord does that here, so ought we despise no one, but put ourselves right in the middle of the fight for sinners and help them. Just like Jesus did, Martin Luther says, we need to be doing the same thing. We need to dive into the lives of the sinful in order to bring them to the hope that Jesus has brought us. This entire genealogy is a proclamation that the Lord of Lords loves us so much that He put on flesh and unashamedly, without editing us, called us to Himself. This genealogy is a reminder that it isn't our good works, it isn't our mighty resume that brought Jesus to this earth. It was in spite of who we are that Jesus came to bring us grace. Which actually leads me to my last point. Undeniable, unashamed, unedited, under grace. Under grace. That's the gift. That is the gift of this genealogy. Under grace. We are all able to be a part of the family of Jesus because we are all under grace. That is what this genealogy proclaims. All these people are still a part of Jesus' family and He puts them in there. Because they like you and me, can only be there because of grace. We are all under grace. In a recent article for Preaching Today, David Prince writes, I know a family who adopted an older child from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought her home, one of the things they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every single day. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it and saw it as a way she could earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by her life in the orphanage. Thus, every single morning when her parents came into the room, it was immaculate. And she would sit on the bed and she would say, my room is clean, can I stay? Do you still love me? And her words broke her new parents' 
heart. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sin. Or Ephesians 2 says it like this, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things you have done. So none of us can boast about it. God tells us, even through this genealogy, how much He loves us. I took on flesh for you. I came and lived amongst you. I left the glories of being in the very presence of the Father for you in order to save and restore you. No matter how far you had fallen, no matter how sinful you had become, I came to bring you a gift of grace. Maybe you're out here this morning and you're thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know if that applies to me. I've been sexually immoral. I've got pretty good at lying. I'm an adulterer. I cheat people when I can to get ahead. Jesus came for all of those. All of them. And any other sin you want to put in there. All of them. The question is, will you accept the gift? Because Jesus doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to bring you home. Transform your life. Transform you into what you could be instead of what we've chosen to be. Will you choose to accept this gift? That's what the genealogy says to me. What about to you? Will you pray with me? Lord, we come and uh, I still cannot imagine, understand, or even grab hold of why You would allow Your Son to take on flesh and serve mankind and sacrifice Himself for the likes of someone like myself. But I know it speaks to the love You have for us. I know it reminds me that you're unashamed. You aren't ashamed of me. or You don't want to edit me out. In fact, you want to edit me in to your family. I'm so very glad that Jesus entered into history and at Christmas time, that's exactly what we can proclaim. Jesus entered into history to save each and every one of us. And so Lord, if we're struggling with sin in our lives, I pray that this genealogy would would proclaim to each one here, you can come to Christ because it is a gift of grace. Accept it and come. Not to stay in our sin, but to accept the gift of Christ and move in His direction through the Spirit that He gives us in our baptism. I pray for each one, if they're struggling with, with, with sin in their life, that they would repent of that and recognize 
that Jesus forgives those who confess their sin. God, thank you for entering history through your Son. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me. We're going to sing our hymn of decision. Maybe you've been a Christian all your life, but you realize I've still got these sins that I'm struggling with. Maybe now's the time to confess your sin to Christ. Maybe now's the time to yield those things to God. Maybe now's the time to accept the grace that Jesus gives. It's going to be those at front that will pray with you and help you with that and be there to support you in any way they can. Maybe now's the time to accept the gift for the very first time. Maybe now's the time to come and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and repent of the way you've been living so you can live this new life through Him. Maybe now's the time to be immersed. What, what a day it is to celebrate someone's birth in the Lord. Whatever your decision, won't you make it as we sing this, this hymn of decision this morning. O come all ye faithful.